Uh, I was messaging Chandler about this sermon yesterday, and he suggested something that I think is actually a really important point. I hadn't thought of it from this perspective necessarily. Um, But we probably aren't as vocal as we should be about how important the Psalms have been in the development of Christian theology over the years. Maybe this hasn't been your own personal experience, but I know that for me, it's very easy to just categorize the Psalms as being these beautifully written expressions of human emotion. And if we're being really generous with our reading or really studious, we might look at them as maybe some insightful writings for Jewish history, right? There's certain psalms that were used in certain ways that reveal maybe the, the, the patterns of Jewish life or the Jewish calendar or something like that. But the truth is, we probably wouldn't have had the same tools to recognize Jesus as the Son of God if we did not have the contributions made in the book of Psalms. As we will see today, Psalm 2 is actually referenced several times in the New Testament. And being the church history nerd that I am, you guys have learned this by now, I feel compelled to let you know that Psalm 2 actually becomes a very important text for the early church during the early Christian debates over the identity of Jesus. In fact, uh, when early theologians were trying to work out the appropriate way to discuss how we talk about the Son of God and what kind of language we use for Jesus and his identity, they settled on a definition of the Son of God being of one essence with the Father. If you guys have heard me harp on the Nicene Creed, or if you've taken like one of the classes I've done on it before in the previous years, you'll likely remember that, right? Of one essence. And as these heretical teachers would try to challenge the idea, it was in reference to this very psalm that they would make their case. After all, the psalm clearly uses language like, today I have begotten you and you are my son. But also, uh, it was because of this that the church father, Athanasius, pointed a finger at the heretics and said, you are like those in Psalm 2.1 because you are denying the son's divine essence and plotting against the true God by failing to recognize God's anointed one. This is the guy who's framing the Nicene Creed. Pretty crazy, right? Psalm 2 is, is an impactful psalm. And so this morning, to, to reflect that, I kind of want to do something a little different than what I would usually do with a sermon. Uh, typically, I like to find a, a main idea and then just find kind of like the logic of the author, break it down, and, and really just leave it at that, right? Just make sure we're reading it the same way. What I want to do this morning is because it is uniquely received in church history, I want to give a plain reading of the passage, right? I want to walk through Psalm 2 together, and then I want to turn our attention to the New Testament and see how the New Testament authors actually use this psalm to reveal Jesus' divine identity. Even though we will see several different contexts in our time together, I believe the underlying point underneath them remains the same across all of them. That the antidote for rebellious humanity is to worship the Son of God, the one who is eternally begotten of the Father and born in time in the person of Jesus, ultimately fulfilling the promise 
of a coming Messiah on behalf of God's people. So let's pray first, and then we will read through Psalm 2 together, uh, and then um, we will look at how the New Testament authors use this psalm to point to Jesus as the Messiah. So pray with me. God, you are merciful to us. Uh, I thank you that you have provided a foundation of the saints, that you have passed down your gospel through your church that you have built. I pray that as we read this psalm with the church, with those inspired by the Spirit to record your words, that we would be attentive towards you, that we would uh, have minimal distractions and that we would ultimately walk out of here uh, knowing you more deeply and desiring to live in light of that love for you. Uh, I pray that you would attune our hearts to receive your truth, that you would reveal what you have hidden in your scriptures, those things that remained veiled for so many years and yet were unveiled uh, at the cross of Christ. And I pray ultimately that any here who do not know you uh, would come to a saving knowledge of you and would give due respect to your anointed one, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These first three verses form the first real section of the psalm. It's more or less divided into four stanzas. Um, your Bible likely divides them out. Most of them seem to. Uh, but they're four pretty neatly divided stanzas. And some have suggested that maybe this was written by David reflecting on Israel's enemies how they had maybe been encroached against by, by another king or uh, someone else. It wouldn't have been a surprise that, that he would have written under those circumstances something like this cry, right? Others have thought maybe he was just asking a, a sense of existential puzzlement, right? Looking around and, and saying, how could people rage against God? But either way, most people seem to agree that he's not actually trying to answer this question. It's actually rhetorical, right? We use this every day, and the psalmist uses it the same way. Uh, he's astonished that people around him could actually not submit to the one true God. You know, I think it's easy whenever we approach something, especially some of these psalms that talk about like kings and royalty, it's very easy to remove ourselves from our circumstances. Uh, it's very easy to picture something like what we see in history books, right? We think of like when you were in ancient history and you studied Cleopatra, or uh, if any of you uh, have seen movies, I don't know, Gladiator, 300, something like that, right? Uh, something that is very, very, very uh, romanticizing of these ancient empires. But when I read something like the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, uh, I, I can't help but consider the state of our own politically charged discourse. No matter which way you slice it, no matter what side you support or what candidate you want to vote for, I'm hard-pressed to believe that any of us, no matter where we fall, 
would say that things like reverence and submission to God are defining characteristics of the kinds of leadership we see. And this isn't just true in the U.S. I'm not just getting political. Don't worry. Um, Actually, if we look at the world around us, it seems like we're in similar circumstances as the psalmist. Just a couple examples. In the name of self-autonomy, physician-assisted suicide. Rates have skyrocketed. It's legalized in, in many countries. In the name of liberation, countries have, have legislated that their citizens can steward their bodies however they would like, with no regard or consideration for how God has created us or his intention for the institution of marriage. We know that, that a healthy, gospel-centered Christianity is actually waning in, in many Western countries if it hasn't already stagnated for decades. Even on a smaller scale, I was reflecting yesterday with somebody on how, uh, obviously with with the recent tragedy this week, um, but also a a very high-profile, prolific uh, murder of a a community teacher earlier this year. It's been a rough year for Blount County. We can look around locally and see that people are raging and plotting against God and his ways. And so I encourage you, first off, Remember that some things never change. We find ourselves in the same place today as the psalmist was then, that us human beings are ruled by our sinful ways, and it means that our kings and our rulers and our communities are ruled by sinful ways as well. I want you to notice the object of the nation's raging. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The psalmist divides the terms, and he begins to draw out this important relationship between the God of Israel and the one that he has anointed and put over Israel as the king. This word anointed, just to to make sure we're, we're tracking, it's actually where we get the word Messiah, right? Oftentimes, when we're reading the psalms, uh, you can substitute the word Messiah if, you, if your translation uses the word anointed, uh, because that's where we get it, right? They, they knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew that there was a promised uh, ruler that would one day be in authority over them, and he would be this anointed one. So these kings of the world that are plotting and raging, they're not merely at odds against God. They're also at odds against the king, the one that God has put in place, in power. And so as readers, we would do well to recognize that the psalmist writes on both these things simultaneously, right? While the psalmist was hoping to emphasize the the present Israelite context, right? We don't know if this was about a specific uh, run-in that maybe they had had with another nation or another leader, or if this was just a broad reflection that the psalmist wanted to make. But there is a localized context in which this is written, And yet, he also is highlighting this larger narrative about humanity's rebellion against God. We're working on both micro and macro scales here. Now, the psalmist tells us that these plots will ultimately result in vanity, right? We see in the next few verses there, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The plots of the people will turn out to be vain because God has appointed one who will rule over them. This very same anointed one, the Messiah, right? And this is the same person that they have been, unfortunate for them, putting themselves at odds with. So, in their plotting and raging, they are unknowingly stoking the flames of the one that God is instilling to be an authority over them. Now, as you know, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I would be failing you as the person preaching on Super Bowl Sunday if I didn't include at least one illustration using the Super Bowl, right? Obviously. So, Harold, I'm sorry, but I have to talk about it. I can remember in 2019, right? I'm a Chiefs fan. I can remember in 2019 watching Patrick Mahomes against the Chicago Bears, and as they were cutting to a commercial after a touchdown, like they often do, uh, they showed a slow-motion highlight of Patrick Mahomes after throwing a touchdown, and he's counting on his fingers, one, two, three, all the way up to ten, right? Now, he hadn't thrown ten touchdowns, that would have been insane, but he's looking at the Bears' sideline, counting to ten. And he's almost like shrugging at them, right? Those of you who know football well might remember that the Bears had traded up from their pick to pick Mitch Trubisky. Now, those of you who know football also know that Mitch Trubisky is not very good at football these days. And Patrick Mahomes has won multiple Super Bowls since then. Patrick Mahomes, being as talented as he is, being a competitive guy... He loves to keep records of this kind of thing. And seeing videos like that makes me ask, when are these teams, maybe like the 49ers this week, when are they going to stop giving this guy bulletin board material, right? When are they going to stop doing things that makes him want to throw four touchdowns on them? It's the same kind of attitude that the psalmist is attributing here. It's hilarious to think that us mere humans are rebelling against a holy and authoritative God and being insubordinate to those that he has put in charge of us, right? The psalmist actually says that God laughs in response to this. He has set his ruler on his holy hill. He has anointed one to rule, and he laughs at the fact that anyone would ever try to fly in the face of his judgment. Now, this seems straightforward enough, but I do think it raises an important question as modern readers of this song. And this is where I'd like to spend the bulk of our time at this juncture. Is this a psalm that's fundamentally about the installation of a king of Israel, right? About David being God's representative on the earth. We've seen it about humanity's spiritual rebellion against God, but, but how can we know that the right way to read this passage, right? It seems like he's, like we said, he's talking about two things at once. He's kind of talking about this bigger spiritual rebellion. He's also talking about like the nation of Israel and its history and, and those who are trying to be at odds with God. And if we say it's about David, then we have to explain verse 7, which says that the son is begotten by God. 
something that we wouldn't affirm unless we thought that David was also divine. And if we say it isn't about David, then we have to explain what it could have meant to the Israelites, right? So what do we do here? I've said it in several different sermons now, and I will reiterate it once again because I think it's a very important principle. But one of the easiest ways to immediately improve your biblical literacy or your ability to understand what the Bible is saying is to pay really close attention when the Bible interprets the Bible for you. As good Baptists, we affirm that the Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? We say it's the Word of God. And so if that's true, then it means that when the, when the biblical authors quote Psalm 2, or they commentate on Psalm 2, that actually it's the Holy Spirit telling us how we should read this text, right? And so, there are three texts I want to look at, briefly, hopefully, to show how in the New Testament, Psalm 2 is interpreted, and how the Holy Spirit reveals the true spiritual meaning of this psalm to us. Each of them do something unique, and yet they all come to this same conclusion we started with, that the promises of God are fulfilled to the uttermost and the incarnate Jesus, who is the Messiah. From even the earliest days of the church's preaching, the Apostle Paul utilizes this psalm to reveal Jesus' divine identity. Uh, if you want to turn to Acts 13, uh, I want to read a section of Paul's sermon in Antioch to show the way that he uses this psalm in his argument. To set the stage for chapter 13, Paul and his crew of preachers have just come to Antioch. They have entered the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath. The law and the prophets are read, as they do in the synagogue. And then there's a call if anyone would like to speak to these things that have been read. And so Paul stands up to preach. And he begins with the story of Abraham, and he tells the entire story of Israel, right? He talks about how Israel desired a king, so God gave them Saul, and then after Saul was taken away, God gave them David, and then from the line of David, God had sent Jesus. <clears throat> and he tells the story of Jesus' earthly ministry and his death and burial and resurrection, and then he says this beginning in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, he did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So in this sermon, Paul uses Psalm 2 to really emphasize the major differences between David 
and Jesus. While both were from the line of David, both accomplishes the purpose of God, only one was the fulfillment of the promise, and only one was truly called a son of God. This could be seen by what ultimately happens at the end of their lives, right? David was a good king. He was a king that one could even call anointed. And he was the one to whom blessings had been promised. But Paul says that David ultimately served a purpose for his generation, and then he died, and then what? He remained dead. He was laid with his father, and he saw corruption, or to, to explain what salt corruption means, he, he remained in Sheol, this place of the dead that they would often write about in the Psalms. But there is somebody who this didn't happen to, and that's Jesus. He resurrected after his death. It was prophesied in Psalm 16 that Yahweh's Holy One, that the true Messiah, he would not have his soul abandoned to Sheol forever. And so evidently, this true Holy One must not have been David, because there was one who was part of David's lineage and who didn't remain dead, and that's Jesus. On the basis of Psalm 2-7, then, Paul depicts Jesus as the true Messiah, the one who ushers in salvation for the world, and it's depicted in the fact that he has risen from the dead. Though the Gentiles raged and plotted against Israel, he resurrected from the dead, and in doing so, shows himself to be the one who was always prophesied about. And so, Paul leaves the people with a similar charge to the one that the psalmist makes in Psalm 2, that you'll be astounded and perish if you don't repent, because God's speaking in an unbelievable way. There's a second place where this text is interpreted in the New Testament. If you will turn to the book of Hebrews, this is a bit of a longer quotation. I'm going to read all of Hebrews 1, uh, but I do think we really do need to, to see the shape of all 14 verses in order to figure out uh, the way that the author of Hebrews uses this text. In Hebrews 1, Psalm 2 contributes to an ongoing argument, or rather the beginning of his argument, that Jesus Christ, as an embodied servant of God's people, is also one who partakes in the divine nature. He is the Son of God, and this makes him a truer and better bringer of salvation than someone like the angels or someone like the high priests. Read along with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. 
But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, and like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The author draws upon several different quotations from the Psalms. In fact, most of the quotes in this section here come from Psalms, interestingly enough. But Psalm 2 is one of the author's leading choices. The author builds a case for Jesus' unique qualification as the full revelation of God's speaking, the one who ultimately brings salvation to all people. This is done in two ways in Hebrews 1. First, by showing Jesus to be the fullest expression of God, right? He is the uh, exact imprint of his nature. He's the one who is the uh, visible image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And then second, by showing Jesus as being greater than the angels. So let's look at what role Psalm 2 plays here. In these first four verses, uh, the author of Hebrews reflects on the way that God had made himself known or revealed himself, right? He used to speak to the Israelites in lots of different ways. He would speak to prophets, and he would speak through, I don't know, a burning bush or a pillar of fire or a donkey, right? Um, Famously. Uh, He revealed himself in many different ways. (coughs) But in these final days, he's spoken through the Son of God. And this Son of God, as the author of Hebrews said, being the perfect image of the invisible God, makes the invisible God visible. He's both the one who sustains the world, but he's also the one who's the heir of the world. He's both the instrument of the creation, and he's also the destination of creation, right? He is both embodied and also the unchangeable God who is without a body. To follow the argument, the incarnate Son is the way that God has chosen to speak. But Jesus' embodied life was not merely an example of God speaking into an abyss. Instead, it actually served a purpose. It's actually a ministry sent out for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Jesus' embodied life is what brings salvation. And the Son of God, as a human being, serving human beings like the angels, he's sent to point this humanity to their salvation. But he does it in a better way than the angels. Because none of the other angels have this extra benefit of actually being a son of God, right? None of the angels are the heir of the world or sit at the right hand of the God on high. While angels and Jesus were both ministering spirits that would proclaim God's truth, only one of them was truly embodied. Only one of them was truly human. And only one of them was truly a son of God. 
The author of Hebrews actually quotes Psalm 2 again in chapter 5 to take this argument further. Jesus is actually able to be a better high priest because he, as the embodied one, is also the one who's begotten of the Father. He takes on flesh and he learns obedience through the incarnation, and because of this, he is able to actually become our source of salvation. It's by using Psalm 2-7 as a starting place that the author of Hebrews pieces this together throughout his letter. Jesus is the best and most effective messenger of salvation because he is the very expression of God's nature. He is God. This is why Psalm 2 became such an important text for early Christian theologians, like I said. It demonstrates the full divinity of Jesus as the Son of God. It recognizes that there was one who came as a human being, a son to a father, who accomplished salvation and then ascended to the majesty on high. And he did all this while wielding our humanity for our sake. The early church rightly recognized the significance of this word, begotten, right? We've seen it in, in nearly every reference so far. Now, when you and I hear the word begotten, I would assume for most of us, our brain goes to the King James translation of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, it's a fantastic verse. In fact, it's, it's a verse that I wish we had kept the begotten language in in a lot of contemporary translations because the word is important, Begottenness reveals something about the nature of things. This is an example that I commonly use with people when I've talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, what it means for God or for Jesus to be God. Um, so I will use it here. Some of you may have already heard me do this before. Uh, but I wouldn't say, it would be entirely inappropriate for me to say that I begot Milo, my Jack Russell Chihuahua, who drives me insane and often doesn't let me get enough sleep at night, right? It would, be, it would be completely inappropriate to say I begot him. He sleeps in my bed. He requires me to adjust my schedule for him. I feed him. He's part of the family. But he's not my son. I didn't beget him. Instead, we are different natures. And I think this is a good thing, actually. It would be quite concerning if, if we weren't, right? We don't share in the same nature because he wasn't begotten by me. And so whenever, whenever the Psalms or the New Testament says that the Son is begotten by the Father, that is, that is more than just revealing a relationship. It's actually revealing something about the very essence of the Son. That he is of the same kind of thing that the Father is of. Divinity. Godness, if we want to use crass terms, right? There's something distinctly divine or belonging to God in his inner nature that the Son of God participates in. And this is all because he has revealed himself as begotten of the Father. This is the same thing that, that the author of Hebrews is highlighting here. That because the psalmist says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or rather, God speaking through the psalmist says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And he doesn't say that to the angels. 
Jesus is actually a better deliverer of salvation. So you can begin to see the the beauty of Trinitarian doctrine in these passages. And you can see how the psalmist and the author of Hebrews together assemble this great picture of what it means for God to affect salvation. The Son of God taking on flesh is more than just a, a, a cute baby being born and a joyful thing that we celebrate. Yes, it is that. Uh, but also, it's God himself taking on flesh and dwelling with man. Where a way could not be provided before, there is now a way. It's the message that the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit, thought Psalm 2 was saying. And so I think we can say with confidence it's the same takeaway we should have today. There's one final place that I want to look at in the New Testament, and that's in Revelation. Unlike the first two texts that we looked at, uh, it's, it's less central to the argument and less immediately apparent throughout the book. Um, there's actually several different instances, uh, but I want to look at two where the author quotes it pretty directly, because uh, I think they are, they are some of the clearest examples that we have for John's use of Psalm 2. Uh, The first we can see in chapter 2, in verse 27, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. At this point, uh, for context, John has been writing these letters to the seven churches. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with with these seven churches. Uh, I believe we preached through them at at some point in the last several years. I could be misremembering that. Maybe that was an idea. Maybe it didn't actually happen. It was just an idea. Taylor and I had talked about that, but it didn't happen. But stay tuned, because Chandler wants to do it at some point in life. Um, so he's writing these, these letters to seven churches, uh, and he says this, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The second quotation is in Revelation 19. I'll read beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The images of ruling with an iron rod and smashing the potter's clay are as we have seen, taken directly from Psalm 2.9, where we see the Davidic king being pictured as breaking this inheritance of nations that he has with a rod of iron and dashing them into pieces like the potter's vessel, judging them for their stubbornness and their insubordination to God. John's use of this psalm throughout the book of Revelation suggests that he too believed that it was not merely about David in his day, But rather, and to even take that further, it wasn't just about Jesus' incarnate ministry on the earth before he ascended into heaven, right? 
Instead, it's presented as a reference to the Son's eternal reign, which is to come over all nations, over all kings, as the world is subjected beneath Him. Jesus is depicted throughout Revelation as the executor who brings the plans of the Father to their fulfillment, not just for Israel and not just on the cross, but also in a future restoration of all things for eternity at His second coming. And this is the one and same prediction we see given in the Psalms, right? The nations will be this king's heritage, and the ends of the earth will be his possession. Throughout the New Testament, then, we see a consistent message, right? The king of Psalm 2 well may have been about David in his day, but it was always intended to point us forward to Jesus, the embodied one who secures our salvation and who serves as the Lord's anointed on our behalf. So having looked at these three glimpses in the New Testament, uh, I want to return then to Psalm 2 and read its conclusion in view of these things, right? I think we've pretty well established that the New Testament seems to have read this as a psalm about Jesus, and they've shown us how they do that and why they do that. So what does it ultimately say? Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus, the resurrected one, has been placed on God's holy hill. Jesus, the incarnate one, the one who is fully divine, fully human, will one day receive the nations and the ends of the earth as his possession. David was a mighty king, yes, but he is an earthly image of the one who was going to become the truest expression of God's glory, the true high priest, the true one who could actually secure our salvation, the true Messiah and the true king of Israel. And so I ask, in light of this, in light of, view, of verse 11 and 12 that we see in Psalm 2, how can we honor him? We know that in the ancient world, kissing was a sign of showing honor to people, right? It was a, a sign of welcome, a sign of uh, showing honor to someone who is of superior status to you. So what does it mean to honor the Son? Maybe you are a Christian, but you're failing to honor the Son in, in the way you live your week-to-week -week life. While you can't sin your way out of the gospel... It's also probably still worth asking ourselves, in light of this psalm, 
if the heir of the world, if his wrath is quickly kindled, is it really the wisest course of action to be living our lives in a way that is not submissive to him? Do I have anything to fear when we read these verses? He loved you enough to take on flesh, to die a death you deserved, and now places you in the most high place with him. And as a result of that, how do you respond? Are you paying him his due, and are you living a life that is worthy of the name that you bear? If you're here and you are not a Christian, then the difficult reality is that you are in the same boat as the kings of Psalm 2. You have put your own plans against God's, You've elevated yourself to a status that you don't actually belong. And there is soon a day, as we see in Psalm 2 and in Revelation, where the Son of God will return. And I encourage you to consider more deeply what it means for this very same Son of God, begotten of the Father, to have taken on the form of humanity so that He could invite you to have your sins forgiven. We are all submitting to something or someone. The question is who? Blessed are all who take refuge in him, the incarnate son who will one day return, Jesus of Nazareth who died on a cross and resurrected and will one day come back, and with whom those who are forgiven through his sacrifice will someday reign. 